You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Treatment of severe valvular heart disease typically would mean surgery. Are there non-surgical approaches on the horizon for our patients? Joining me today to discuss investigational and catheter-based approaches to this dilemma is Dr. Howard Herman, professor of medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and director of the Interventional Cardiology and Cardiac Catheterization Laboratories there. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Herman. Thank you very much. Tell us what type of heart problems we might approach through non-surgical means that used to be surgically corrected only. Sure. There really is a burgeoning field now of treatments that are available in the catheterization laboratory for structural and valvular heart disease. We tend to think of the cath lab as a place where we treat coronary disease with stents and acute myocardial infarctions, but a large and growing segment of what we do is treating structural and valvular problems. In the structural area, we're closing holes in the heart like PFOs, Peyton Freeman O'Valley, and atrial septal defects. We're also treating other forms of congenital heart disease, including Peyton ductus, VSDs, coronary fistulas, things like that. And then in the valvular disease area, what we used to think of as only using balloons to treat stenotic valves, like mitral and aortic stenosis, is now really moving into the areas that were truly only areas surgeons went to before, things like mitral regurgitation and aortic stenosis. In terms of the uh, non-valvular issues that you mentioned, when is it appropriate for us to consider repair of a patent foramen ovale or an ASD? Not all of them need that, do they? No, they don't. The ASD area is a lot easier to discuss. We know for many years what the surgical indications are for treatment of atrial septal defects. These are holes in the upper septum between the left and right atria in which there's usually a left-to-right shunt leading to increased blood flow through the lungs and a volume load for the right ventricle. So in patients with a shunt of more than about 1.5 to 1, maybe 2 to 1 in some surgical series, we're now closing any of those secundum defects that are amenable to closure with a device. Now, not all atrial septal defects are amenable to device closure. Some still require surgery depending on their location, the size, and whether there's a rim of tissue for the device to catch on to or not. Is the determination of the amount of left-to-right shunting made by uh, Doppler echo at this point? It's usually initially made that way and then confirmed at catheterization when we close the defect. But what used to be a open-heart procedure and the need for cardiopulmonary bypass is now a half-hour procedure in the cath lab, usually directed by intracardiac echo. We don't even have to use anesthesia or TEE to see the hole and to close it. So atrial septal defect closure really has, been, has really replaced surgery whenever it's feasible. How does it work mechanically? Well, there are two approved devices now in the U.S. The one that's probably most frequently used was the first one approved, which is an Amplatzer device. And it's a nitinol double-disc configuration. It's made out of woven nitinol with some polyester Dacron fabric inside of it to help with the healing, but it essentially fits like a clamshell with a disc on each side of the defect and a waist in between that catches the actual hole. It's just held in there by this sandwiching mechanism? It's by force on each side of the septum. These devices come in up to four centimeter diameter holes that can be closed and they can be inserted through catheters as small as eight or nine French. Increased risk for clot formation with these? Not really. We just treat with aspirin and a short course of Plavix. There's not really much concern about clot formation during the procedure or afterwards. 
There is a tiny risk of embolization, and in certain very large holes, a small risk of perforation. But in general, the risks are, are quite small and very similar, if not smaller, than those of open-heart surgery. Fascinating. And with patent foramen ovale, VSDs, how are those approached? Similarly, there are a number of different devices. The problem with the PFO arena is that most PFOs are closed for in patients who have had a neurologic event, a paradoxical embolism presenting as a cryptogenic stroke. And unfortunately, no device has been proven to be better than medical therapy yet. There are ongoing randomized trials, one of which is nearing completion in the next few months. And until then, no device is truly approved for this indication. So any PFO closures that we do are either part of trials or are utilizing off-label devices, such as an ASD device used to close a PFO. Interesting. And any other words about other structural heart defects other than the valvular issues we will discuss? The other probably large area of treatment nowadays is alcohol septal ablation for hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy where this has become a, a very competitive treatment to the operation where surgical myomectomy is performed with or without valve therapy. How is that done? That's done utilizing angioplasty techniques to instrument the septal perforator branch of the left anterior descending usually that perfuses the area of asymmetric septal hypertrophy, the extra muscle that has grown into the outflow tract of the left ventricle and causes the obstruction we find the artery that goes to that area and then inject a small amount of alcohol, usually one to three cc's, to damage those cells and cause them to necrose and shrink away from the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve, the combination of which is what causes the obstruction to outflow. Fascinating. And is that a painful procedure for the patient? Well, in some ways, it's very similar to having a heart attack, but usually the pain doesn't last quite as long. We've seen patients have severe pain for a few minutes and then usually a dull ache for an hour or two, and then it goes away. Some patients have a little more or a little less, but of course we know when it's going to happen, and so we can give appropriate pain medication to get the patients through it quite comfortably. And compared to having your chest opened, probably 10 out of 10 people would go for that. That seems to be the consensus, correct? If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health System on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Howard Herman, professor of medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and director of interventional cardiology and the cardiac catheterization laboratories there. We are discussing catheter-based interventions for heart problems. Why don't we turn now to valvular issues? And I have recollection of valvuloplasties for aortic stenosis associated with strokes and other terrible outcomes. Where are we in 2008 with this? Well, balloon aortic valvuloplasty, which is what you're describing, had a brief period of interest in the late 1980s and early 1990s where it seemed to be a, a reasonable treatment to reduce aortic stenosis and to reduce the gradient. Although it really wasn't complicated by a lot of issues like stroke, the big problem with aortic valvuloplasty was that it was really just a short-term solution. It opened up the valve a little bit, and within 6 to 12 months, most people had recurred their aortic stenosis. So it's really only occupied a palliative role for a small number of high-risk or non-operable patients. What's exciting now, though, is that in the last few years since Dr. Cribier demonstrated the concept in 2002 in a patient in France, we have a bioprosthetic valve that is mounted on a stent, crimped on a balloon, and then can be inserted 
with this catheter system inside the diseased calcific aortic valve. It's opened up and deployed inside the old valve where the stent keeps the old valve out of the way and a new bioprosthetic valve functions inside the stent, completely relieving the aortic stenosis. This technology has now been adopted by a couple of different companies. In the U.S., we have the Edward Sapien valve, which is being studied as part of a multicenter randomized trial called PARTNER. And more than uh, 300 patients have now been treated in the U.S. with this device. And it's really revolutionary. I mean, the valve area goes from 0.5 or 0.7 up to about 1.7 in an instant. And the gradient goes down to almost nothing. And these patients are not having their heart stopped. They're not having their chest cracked. And they're up and talking within hours of the procedure, standing up and walking around by the next day. Boy, that sounds magnificent. Obviously, the lumen is going to be much bigger than a coronary artery, but are there some thrombotic or restenosis type of issues with this technique? We really haven't seen that. The biggest impediment to full adoption of this technology is, of course, we don't know how long these valves last. The longest living survivor with one of these sapien valves is now only a few years, so we don't know if it's going to be quite as good as the surgical bioprosthetic valves. And it is still a very large device. In its usual form right now, it's still about 24 French, which is about 8 millimeters. So you have to have pretty sizable iliac and femoral arteries in order to insert this. It usually requires a cut down, although some centers do it percutaneously. And there are some patients who have too much vascular disease to make it feasible to go through the transfemoral route. For some of those patients, it can be inserted through a small mini thoracotomy directly into the apex of the left ventricle. But still on a beating heart, without having to go on cardiopulmonary bypass. There are two cohorts in the trial. There was one cohort that's high-risk patients but who could have surgery, and the randomization is between the transcatheter valve and traditional open-heart surgery. And then there's a separate cohort for patients who are truly too ill to have surgery where randomization is between the uh, sapien valve and medical management. And then for mitral regurgitation, is the concept the same? No. The concept's very different for mitral regurgitation. It's very difficult to get a stent to seat in a mitral valve that's not calcified. And so, although there are some drawing board options for percutaneous mitral valve replacement, most of the attention to now has been on percutaneous approaches to repair. And the leader in that field is the Evalve Corporation, who has developed a clip technique that mimics the Alfieri operation in which the middle scallops of the two mitral leaflets are clipped together to create a double orifice mitral valve. And that actually works very well to reduce mitral regurgitation. And this can all be done on a beating heart through a catheter-based approach guided by transesophageal echocardiography. Close to 400 patients have now been studied with that technique, close to 300 in a randomized trial that is almost completed. And in about a year, we should have some data from that trial comparing this mitral clip technique to traditional open-heart repair. And any unusual, again, thrombotic or other precautions to take after the mitral valve has been clipped like this? No. We treat the patients with aspirin and Plavix unless they have other indications for anticoagulation. And it's also a, a fairly rapid recovery. It is done under general anesthesia. Most patients are going home within one or two days, and we have up to a four-year follow-up now demonstrating that in patients who get a good result, that that result is durable for several years. 
Well, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Howard Herman, who is professor of medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and director of interventional cardiology in the cardiac catheterization laboratories there, for taking us through what is very exciting new territory, catheter-based treatments for things like atrial septal defect, as well as patent foramen ovale and other structural heart problems, and then some very exciting work that's being done with aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation, and specifically with mitral regurgitation, already data that's four years old showing durability and good results. Patients are having these procedures done without having to stop the heart, without traditional surgical techniques. Thank you, Dr. Herman. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand features. Thank you for listening.